pray together. God, we are here this morning to behold you in your word. We ask that in this time that you would speak to us uh, through what Jesus has spoken. And Lord, work in us this morning, we ask, as our gaze is fixed on you. In Jesus' strong name we pray, amen. You may be seated. Well, we are wrapping up a section of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount today. We're not finishing his sermon, but we are finishing a section uh, within his sermon. So please turn to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. Give you a moment just to get settled. The text that we have in front of us this morning is extraordinary, especially in light of what we looked at last time. Last time we were in Matthew's gospel, we observed verses 38 through 42. And if you were not here, I want to encourage you to go back and watch or listen to that sermon titled Heart of the Matter Part 5. Because in that sermon, Pastor Brian continued the flow of thought in Jesus' teaching, helping us to understand that God wants us to value Christ above all. Even when our things and our rights and our dignity are all threatened. Valuing Christ above all so that we leave vengeance and justice in God's hands and we use something that's unthinkable in our time, and that is to give grace in the midst of of suffering. You cannot give grace in the midst of suffering unless you're completely dependent upon God. Jesus has been doing something amazing here in chapter 5. And I want you to look at this before we get into our text. I just I, I want to point out something thematic that's been popping up throughout Jesus' teaching. We saw it at the very end of the Beatitudes, didn't we? We went through all of these spirit-filled mindsets and really the kind of heart that Jesus is after in the Beatitudes at the beginning of chapter 5, but look how the Beatitudes end. Verse 10, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Suffering, persecution, all the Beatitudes led up to that, that teaching because you cannot suffer well unless your heart is in the kind of place that Jesus has been describing. But, but that wasn't the end. That wasn't the end, was it? Moving deeper into Jesus' sermon, he gives a, a list of six different sayings. Six different sayings that had to do with, with the law, but especially with man's interpretation of the law. So Jesus gives six statements of authority showing God's perspective on the matter. And, and I really think that these six statements, by the way, we're on the sixth one today. It's in this section that people's smiles fade as they listen to Jesus because Jesus is going deeper. We loved the Beatitudes. We loved the ideas of being salt and light, even though those, those are challenging. But Jesus really cuts away at our hearts with his six statements. And statement number five that we saw last time, again, it has to do with suffering. Verse 39, but I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. 
But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. If anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go, go one mile, go with them two miles. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Well, wait a second. Wait a second. This is really getting uncomfortable. Jesus, you're telling me that I don't just need to expect suffering, but now you're telling me that I need to give grace in suffering. It's exactly what Jesus is telling us. And as Jesus continually returns to this theme of suffering again and again this morning, we're going to see what he's after. So let's look at our text for today. Would you please, uh, just one more time, sorry I said to sit down. Can you stand with me one more time? And we're just going to read verses 43 to 48. You can follow along as I read. You've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends his rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You must therefore be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. God, would you help us now as we look into your word to have clarity? And that, please, would you work in our hearts? In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Jesus is really cutting away at the core of our thinking, and it's on purpose. It's on purpose. Notice his. His final statement in our text, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. This is what Jesus is after. And my hope for you as we unpack what being perfect means and what loving your enemy means, my hope and my prayer for you is that it skyrockets your dependence on God and that it skyrockets your love to be a love that is completely other than human love. Uh, For the sake of an outline today, we're going to follow a pattern that's consistent throughout each of Jesus' antithesis statements here in chapter 5. There's a fourfold pattern, fourfold pattern. If you you notice it, the pattern begins in the section about anger in verse 21. And it's the same pattern in the section on lust beginning in verse 27. And you see much of the pattern in the section on divorce. You can see the pattern in the sections on oaths and retaliation. Jesus uses a similar pattern of communicating in each of these. And so what I want to do is just recognize that pattern and use that pattern as our outline. And then we can work through each portion of verses 43 to 48 together as we go. All right, so let's begin with the first part of this pattern of Jesus' teaching in verse 43. And that's this. Jesus recalls a human teaching. Jesus recalls a human teaching. And that's why each of these sections he is bringing up, you've heard that it was said. All right, He's recalling a human teaching. It's the first part of the pattern that he uses in getting to the heart of the matter. All right, let's, let's dive into this first one. Verse 43, you've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Now we'll stop right there. You've heard that it was said. This is the sixth time we've heard Jesus recall the human teaching. And the real question is, where does this teaching come from? 
All the human teachings, the, the principles of the rabbis and scribes, these were based on original portions of the law. So every time we look at one of these, you've heard that it was said statements, uh, we've done two things. First, we've looked at the portion of the law of Moses that the human teaching was built on, and then second, we've looked at how it was altered from the original Mosaic law to be something that was similar but very different from God's law. All right, so let's start with the origin of this human teaching. What part of God's law is the phrase from verse 43 based on? Well, I think we see that in Leviticus chapter 19. Leviticus chapter 19, verses 17 and 18 say this, you shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of them. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. So back to Jesus' sermon, it's easy to see where that loving your neighbor as yourself teaching comes from. It comes from God. Throughout the New Testament, this law is cited at least nine different times in the, in the New Testament, not only in the Gospels, but in Romans, Galatians, James, and 1 John. However, the, the people had a very narrowly defined understanding of what that meant, especially by Jesus' time. The best way for us to understand the mindset of Jewish people towards that law, the way they understood it, is to see Jesus' interaction with a, a lawyer in Luke chapter 10. I think many of you are familiar with the story, so we're not going to read the whole thing together. But the lawyer asks Jesus a question that gives us insight into Jewish thinking. He says, who is my neighbor? That's Luke 10, 29. And Jesus responds with the story of the Good Samaritan. Why is that such a big deal? Well, because Jewish thinking at that time understood neighbor to mean only fellow Jews, only other fellow Jewish people. So when the lawyer says in Luke 10, who's my neighbor? And Jesus answers with a Samaritan, the people whom Jews hated, it was shocking. What's the point? Well, the point is that God's idea of love is not a reserved love. It's not reserved for your fellow people only. It's not reserved for your family only. And we'll see more of that in just a moment. But back in Matthew 5, you heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. You see, because the, the neighbor part of that command was only understood to mean fellow Jews. It left room for something else. It left room for hating your enemy. Because you're only required to love your fellow Jews. But where does that idea come from? I believe it ultimately comes from human error, right? We don't have a, a command from God in Scripture to hate your enemy, but we do see something in the Psalms that could be misinterpreted, and that something is called imprecatory Psalms. If you've been through our journey through the Bible program, then you're probably familiar with this because we've, we've talked about imprecatory Psalms. These were Psalms that were basically prayers for God to enact justice on Israel's enemies, we don't have time to go through all of them. But it's worth noting that some of these imprecatory psalms were, were prayers for God to wipe people out, to take revenge on his enemies, and to cause suffering on those who oppressed Israel, even down to the enemy's children. So why is that part of Scripture? 
Well, I believe it's part of Scripture because it shows a very raw picture of a people who were dependent on God for justice and, and, and help at the hands of merciless people. Imprecatory psalms are not something to pray over your enemies. When Jesus says, love your enemies and pray for them, he's, he doesn't mean pray imprecatory psalms. But in some way, we do pray imprecatory prayers to God. When, when do we do that? Well, we do that when we ask for God to have justice for the unborn. When we ask God to have justice on those who murder and rape and abduct the helpless. We're not praying for God to bash their heads open like we see in some of the psalms. But we are praying for justice. And I believe that's an extremely important thing to remember because in a very nationalistic society where the common belief was we are God's people and no one else is, it was easy to develop the idea that all other nations were enemies not only of God but of God's people. And this gets twisted because if if you believe that in Leviticus 19, God is only commanding his people to extend love to fellow Jews, then human error capitalizes on its own tendency to misinterpret God's words for our own desires. Why? Because it's infinitely easier to love only your closest allies. It's infinitely easier to only have to show kindness to your friends and family and your fellow countrymen. So Jesus gets at the very heart of that wrong thinking. And this leads us to the next part of Jesus' pattern in his six, sta- uh, six sayings in Matthew 5. And that is this. Jesus, Jesus gives a new authoritative teaching. He gives a new authoritative teaching. Right? So the pattern is, in these statements, Jesus recalls a human teaching, and then he gives a new authoritative teaching. We see this in verses 44 to 45. Let's read it here. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. We'll stop right there. What a shocking command. There's several things that that immediately strike us at the heart when we read this. The first thing is Jesus' authority. It's Jesus' authority. But I say to you, So for the sixth time in this chapter, Jesus is setting himself up as the source of God's law. Jesus sets apart what people have said. You've heard that it was said. Setting it apart from his own authority. But I say to you. So over and over again, we're struck in Matthew 5 with a kind of authority that's not of this world. A kind of authority that demands our obedience. The next thing that we're struck with is the immediate antithesis of the human teaching, which was to hate your enemy, Jesus says the exact opposite in his next words. Love your enemy. That's shocking. When we get past the shock, we ask the question, what does it mean to love my enemy? It's a great question. And guess what? We already saw it. Did you catch it? Leviticus 19 actually tells us God's expectation. Love your neighbor as yourself. As yourself. That's the kind of love which, with, with which we are to love our enemies. It's always been there. It's always been there. And so when the lawyer asked in Luke 10, who is my neighbor? 
Jesus' response with the Good Samaritan echoes perfectly the desire of God for his people. Love your enemy as yourself. They are your neighbor. How do you love yourself? Well, you provide for yourself. You give yourself the best you can give. You ensure your safety, your enjoyment, your comfort. Life revolves around making sure your own needs are taken care of. Why? Well, because as human beings, our sinful flesh is twisted into a backward way of loving. Beginning with self. But God's way is the opposite. Love others the way you love yourself. So Jesus makes the shocking statement, love your enemy. It's it's not that God's desire or his command had somehow changed. It hadn't changed. It's the same command it's always been. And Jesus is proving that God's second greatest command to love your neighbor as yourself includes your enemy, not just your buddies. But he says something else, and this is so hard. He gives a practical way you can love your enemy. Something that's paired with true love. Prayer. Prayer. Pray for those who persecute you. The idea in the word enemy and those who persecute you is not just that somebody has a different belief than you. It's the idea here of an enemy and a persecutor being someone who intends you harm. They intend you harm. All right, so this isn't just someone who chose a different way of schooling their kids. This is someone who intends to hurt you. And here we have it, persecution. Jesus has been bringing up persecution over and over again in his teaching. And it all comes to this climax where he says, your response must be to love them and pray for them. And just as a side note, I I know there's some of you who've been around here a long time. And you might think, hey, I I don't really like the idea of our older pastors retiring and younger guys stepping in because things are only going to get harder. And someday the people in this church might face persecution. What are we going to do if we don't have our older, more seasoned pastors? What are we going to do when persecution comes? And I'll tell you exactly what we're going to do when persecution comes. We'll rejoice and be glad, Matthew 5, 12. We'll give grace to our persecutors, Matthew 5, 39 to 42. And we will love and pray for our persecutors, Matthew 5, 44. How could we be more like the Father than that? You see, that's the point. The point is not how hard it is. The point is who the Father is. That's the point. And so Jesus says these words in verse 45, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. All this points to God the Father. I think it's easy to wonder what what Jesus' statement meant. What does it mean? So that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. Well, it's actually not that complex. Jesus does not say, love your enemies to earn sonship. It's not so that you can become sons of your Father. Instead, Jesus commands loving your enemies so that you can demonstrate sonship. 
So that rather than, rather than becoming sons by loving your enemies, you instead will resemble your father. You may be sons, be loving as sons. You see, it's only by faith that we become sons of the father. And through a life of faith, God builds in us the family resemblance. By the way, Jesus did not only command this, he lived it out. Later on, when he was falsely accused in a very illegal trial, when he was hated, when he was beaten, and when he was torn to shreds, suffering anguish and physical shock and spiritual wrath, on the cross, we read the following in Luke 23, and Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Jesus himself provided the most perfect example of everything he just commanded right here in verse 44 of Matthew 5. He lived out his teaching. So there's two parts we've seen to the pattern of these statements of Jesus. He recalls a human teaching. He gives a new authoritative teaching. And then the third part of this pattern we see in verses 45 to 47. Jesus, this is where he explains the teaching. Jesus explains the teaching. Look at the second part of verse 45. For he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? This is all about the Father. If we're to resemble the Father, if we're to hold the the family resemblance as children of God, how fitting to see the Father's example. In verses 45 to 47, there's, there's three aspects of what Jesus says that I want to point out. And here's the first one from the Father's example. Perfect love is not deserved. Perfect love is not deserved. Now, that might seem just a little bit odd uh, here in our text because our minds, when we look at at these verses, our minds just immediately go to the impartiality, right? That's what we're thinking. We read this and we go, impartiality. We're drawn to that. But before we get there, I think something that we can observe about God's love is that it's undeserved. It's undeserved. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good. And sends his rain on the just and on the unjust. You see, the rain and the sunshine are given by God himself. We like to think that the good and the just people are the ones who deserve it. It's actually not the case. God's love is undeserved by all. And that point is especially easy to see with the evil and the unjust. God still lovingly pours out his grace and love by providing even for those who are wicked. Let me ask you a question. Is your love only given to those that deserve your love? 
Is it only given to those who are doing everything right in your eyes? It's not godly love. That kind of love doesn't resemble the Father. Notice second, perfect love is not partial. Perfect love is not partial. This is the easiest one for us to spot. Jesus asks a question here in verse 46. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? To love like God means not only to love those who are on your side or those you approve of. Loving like God means to love all within your context. Is your love partial? Is it reserved only for those who you like or who are like-minded with you? Who have the same family choices as you? Or only have the same faith in God as you? If your love is like that, it's not godly love. It does not carry the family resemblance of your heavenly father. And so Jesus mentions the tax collectors, the people in Jewish society who were seen as the most twisted and crooked people. Even they love those who love them. That doesn't resemble the father. Notice third, perfect love is not ordinary. Perfect love is not ordinary. Again, Jesus asks a piercing question. And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? See, ordinary loving kindness is extended to our family and our closest friends. That's ordinary love. Jesus asks, don't the Gentiles, the the people who don't know God, don't they do that? So that kind of love is ordinary. It's common. God's perfect kind of love is different. It's different. It's extended to those who are enemies. That's perfect love. The opposite of ordinary love. Here, friends, here is extraordinary love. Ephesians 2, 4, and 5. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ by grace you've been saved. That's God's kind of love. Do you only extend ordinary love? Love that's no different than anyone else in our culture who doesn't know God. God's love's different. It's extraordinary. And we get to the last part here of the pattern of Jesus teaching in these six statements. And it's something that he does in a few of the statements, this last part of the pattern. It's this. Jesus affirms the teaching. Jesus affirms the teaching. We see this in verse 48. You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. So sometimes we hear this verse and we have difficulty understanding it. We tend to think of the word perfect as morally perfect. And it can mean that. Actually, the Hebrew understanding of the word perfect 
is tamim. It can mean flawless or ethically pure. But in the New Testament, the Greek word for perfect is teleos, which means mature or complete. Understanding that helps us grapple with Jesus' statement. Be mature and complete like resembling your heavenly Father. So what does that mean in this context? It means to love like your Father loves. We can see that Jesus is affirming the teaching, summarizing it by focusing on the main character of our text today. That's God the Father. He is the one whom we should leave this place today thinking about and dwelling on. What does it mean to love like the Father in my home, at my work? What does it mean to carry the family resemblance of the Father, to be mature and complete in our love in a way that's just like Him? See, if you're a citizen of God's kingdom, if you're worshiping and following the Messiah King, then Matthew 5 leads to this glorious conclusion at the end of the chapter, focusing on the Father himself. And everything that Jesus has taught so far in this sermon, it points us to living as sons of the Father. The question we're left is, will we obey? Will we obey? And to do that, I just want to close with three simple implications from our passage. Three things this implies for us. How we can take this and and live this out when we leave here. How we can love God's way. First, loving God's way means that we must love and pray for those who are not our enemies. We must love and pray for those who are not our enemies. Why do I say that? Well, I say that because I think the reason why this text seems so impossible, so difficult, is because today the church in America does not even love and pray for its own. Friend, if you don't love and pray for your own people when they love you, how do you expect to love and pray for your enemies when they hurt you? The answer is you won't. It won't even be on your mind. Does it strike you that we have to spend so much time working on how to be kind to the people who love us? We have to labor to be kind and love our own spouses and our children and our family. If you want to love like God, if you want to be ready to love your enemies and pray for them, you must be devoted to loving like God with the people who love you. For some of you, Jesus' command is so impossible because you don't, you don't love your family or your church. When was the last time you prayed for your spouse? When was the last time you prayed for your small group? When was the last time you prayed for your church family? If it's been a while, that's a red flag. It will be next to impossible for you to love your enemy if those who love you right now are not experiencing the love of God the Father through you. Second, loving God's way means we must love passionately. We must love passionately. Why do I say that? That seems awkward. 
Well, I think there's this idea that we can give impassionate love. And perhaps we can pray dispassionately for those who are our enemies. You go through the motions of praying for them. But actually, God's way of love involves passion. What happens if you truly love someone? If you truly love someone God's way, you pray for them. And what happens when you pray for them? Your love grows. What happens when your love grows? You pray for them more if you're loving God's way. You see the cycle? God's way of love involves passion and a deepening of love that continues growing. So Jesus is not teaching a shallow kind of dispassionate love toward our enemies. He's teaching a genuine love that is deep and keeps getting deeper. Aren't you glad that God's love toward you was a passionate love when you were lost and dying as a hater of God? That's God's kind of love. And third, we must strive to know our Heavenly Father. We must strive to know our Heavenly Father. That's what this passage does for us. It turns our gaze to God the Father. He's the ultimate example. You know, I think it's really hard to take the imperative from this passage to love and pray for our enemies, those who persecute us, when we struggle to love those who love us, when we love with dry um, absence of passion, and when we don't seek to know the Father, the true example of love. I think all of those things actually set us up to love the way God loves. The imperative from the passage is obvious. So that's why it's not a main point of application. It's easy to see the command is crystal clear. Love, pray for your enemies and those who persecute you. And you know what? The, the people that I know the most, or, or who, who love the most, they're the most loving in this church. The ones who carry the resemblance of the Father's love. They are people who deeply seek to know the Father. Friends, you can't ignore God and expect to be just like Him. Seek God with your whole life. As you seek Him, you can expect to become more and more like Him as He changes you. I want to close with this quote from English theologian Alfred Plummer. He says this, To return evil for good is devilish. To return good for good is human. To return good for evil is divine. It's divine. May we seek to live as sons of the Father. God, thank you for these words that Jesus spoke in our passage that we've read today. Thank you for the Sermon on the Mount and the way that you're using that to shape our hearts, to deepen our desire to know you more. We've experienced, those of us who are in Christ have experienced your great love. We've experienced it 
when you extended your love while we were dead in our trespasses, while we were not seeking you, while we didn't even want to know you, you sought us out and loved us. And if you love your enemies and we are commanded to love the way you love, we can understand that you want us to love our enemies, to be like the way that you are. God, we can't, can't do that without your help. Just recognize that, that our sinful flesh turns us away every time from loving the way that you love because it's a complete denial of self and it's complete dependence on you. So God, would you please do a work in us to rid us of the supreme self-love that characterizes our hearts many days and instill in us the family resemblance of the Father and his kind of love. It's in Jesus' strong name we pray.